Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me on today's episode of Everything Star Wars. Over the past couple weeks, I've been doing a bunch of uh, guest star episodes on Thursday, and uh, I'm going to keep that going for a bit. We'll see how long it lasts, but it's been pretty fun, and I think y'all really enjoy those episodes. Make sure to let me know if you do or not. But today, today's going to be special because I'm going to have my friend Mark B. Miller on, and he is in postgraduate school, I think. He'll introduce himself in a minute, but he's in, I think, postgraduate school, and he has a uh, degree in philosophy and in music. So, you know, a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about is way out of my depth, but I'm going to do the best I can to keep up. So, I will also throw in any random Star Wars trivia facts I know that may come up, but apart from that, no, you're not alone in being how lost you will be. Uh, we're going to be talking about the film music of Star Wars, with an emphasis on John Williams and light motifs and stuff like that. But don't worry, all will be explained. I'm going to begin by saying two things. One, sorry in advance for the quality of the music that Mark will play. Um, my editing skills, audio editing skills, haven't advanced enough to be able to do that. Hopefully that will change. Thank you for putting up with me. But uh, we'll do the best we can. And again, my second thing will be, I'm going to just read this short little excerpt from Star Wars Archives. Uh, it's uh, under the section Silent Movie, and it's just George Lucas and Paul Duncan, the author of uh, Archives Talking. And it'll be about, it'll cover some of the stuff we talk about in this episode, so this will just give you some background. George Lucas. The idea was to do a classical music, not spacey or modern music. Classic, romantic, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, 1930s. Paul Duncan, you knew that from the beginning? Yeah, our temp music was Korngold, Holst, and all those guys. I went to Steve Spielberg because he's more tied in to L.A. Do you know anyone who's good with orchestral scores? He said, Johnny Williams. I said, Johnny Williams is a jazz pianist. He had just done Jaws, 19, uh, 1975, for Steve. Jaws is dunna, 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 which is like Bernard Herrmann. Yes, because there wasn't a lot of classical scoring going on at that moment. Steve said, no, no, Johnny is great with classical scores, and he knows all of it. So that's why I hired him. Steve's recommendation. Practically, how did you work with Williams? He sees it once with temp tracks, then without. We sit down at our editing machines and go through it scene by scene. I give him the general outline of what kind of music we want. So William saw a, cut, a rough cut on January 10th of the movie. We talked about themes to each character, like Peter and the Wolf, 1936. Each character will have a song. John Williams says, I wrote the score in about two months. William began recording his score with the London Symphony Orchestra at Anvil Studios in Denham on March 5th, 1977. John Williams says, I had never used an organized symphony orchestra before for a film. I think they played beautifully, particularly the brass section. I think it has such nobility and such a wonderful heraldic sound. I think it brings something to the film. You sit in a little room and he rehearses it. Then he plays it once with the film. That's when I get to say, I'm not sure that this is what we want here. Mostly it was all, this is fantastic. I felt completely useless. Paul Duncan says, felt completely useless because he was doing his job properly. <laughs> yeah, because he is a genius. What can I say? That was the one thing that turned out way better than I ever had hoped. Everything else was a little funky, but John's music glued it all together and made it look like a movie. 
There was one or two areas where I wanted something different. When Luke looks at the two sons, the music was originally very triumphant. I said, no, no, I want, I want something very romantic and very wistful. He's yearning for something. So he goes, and it's very different. He wrote a lot of music, 88 out of 121 minutes. It's a lot. I said, it's like a silent movie. Why? It's designed, written, and shot to be understood without words. Occasionally, there's a piece of dialogue that has to be there to get you to point B, but it's mostly carried by the music. That's why it works for kids. A four-year-old can follow it. You said it was designed for 12-year-olds. 12-year-olds, yes. But I didn't expect the result would be that kids of all ages could understand it. I was even more surprised when old people could understand it. It worked for everybody. So that's the excerpt. Keep that in mind. Go back and listen to one of my fun fact episodes, The Score, when I talk about this same thing, just, you know, not as in-depth. Now, let's jump right in with an ad, of course. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hi, Joshua. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you? That's good. I'm doing well. Doing well. Glad good, to see yeah. the dogs win. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so we're going to be talking about some pretty pretty deep stuff here. Well, I say we, this is mostly going to be you because I'm way out of my depth here. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure. way out of my depth here. So ex- mm-hmm. explain to our viewers what makes you qualified to be talking about philosophy and music and all this stuff. That's right. That's right. So my name is Mark Beemler. I'm a, I'm a graduate student at the Florida State University, and I'm getting my graduate degree, a master's degree in philosophy. Now, philosophy, that doesn't really have anything to do with music. And mostly that's correct. However, um, I also got my undergraduate degree in music. So my undergraduate at University of Georgia was in music and in philosophy. So I got two degrees. And um, one of the things I ended up working on my senior year was a a paper that was kind of devoted to the intersection of film music and philosophy. And one of the things that, um, which will be kind of a recurring theme, particularly during this first um, area, is what is it that makes film music film music? Like, why is it special? How does it work like what 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 should we expect from good film music versus bad film music but besides even these kind of philosophical and musical questions which i'm very very interested in um i'm very qualified to talk about john williams as i've loved him ever since i heard him uh in fact in my fifth grade piano recital i remember playing uh indiana jones's march theme for my <laughs> recital like oh, that's awesome. oh yes uh john williams is near and dear to my heart um, and even if it ever sounds like I'm being critical of something that he's saying, that's actually, it's coming from a place of love, particularly because if it wasn't for him, like one of my favorite CDs in high school was his recording he made with the Boston Pops Orchestra that he would, uh, conduct. And that had all of his like greatest hits as it were. And that was one of my favorite things to listen to. And then if it wasn't for like John Williams's influence, I might not have gone to college to study music and come to become the classical music fanatic that I'm now known for today. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah, it's so John Williams is yeah very important, and if it wasn't for the sound of John Williams, uh, who knows? You know, I might not have been nearly as keen about doing music as I was um, in high school, <laughs> right? So, and it definitely yeah. would have completely changed Star Wars. Um, oh, absolutely, so. no questions there. And even just besides Star Wars, for, it's a, a mark across the entire film industry. Uh, I mean, Williams score is iconic. I believe he, I think he won the Academy Award that year for star Wars. Yeah. And he's gone on to just make some of the biggest, best tunes that we've ever heard coming from Hollywood, particularly with, you know, his good friend and collaborator, Steven Spielberg. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
So, but yeah, um, I mean, yeah. So I, I just spent the past week uh, listening to all of his uh, albums and music uh, soundtracks that I could find on Spotify. And oh, nice. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it blew me away. Like I'd listen to other uh, other music from him, not mm-hmm. not just Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I was I was I was blown away. It, it was really cool. Yeah, there I, there is. Go ahead. I I I was gonna say I like him a lot. I think he's a really phenomenal composer. There's you know other mm-hmm. phenomenal composers out there, but I mean he's just really influential, really uh, really strong composer. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean I'll refer to this later in some ways we can, we can call them the big three as it were of giant long singular soundscapes and that would be ricard wagner uh howard shore and john williams and i'll get a bit more into why i'll bring these three up later but it has to do with well they all three wrote these giant musical scores to these epic fantastical stories they all employ similar techniques and they're all around anywhere between 12 to 16 hours long wow <laughs> uh, wait, so correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Howard Shore was Lord of the Rings? That's correct. Okay. Who was and, Wagner? What did Wagner do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Wagner, um, and that's actually exactly where we should start, Joshua. So okay. Wagner, he's um, one of the most famous composers of the 19th century and one of the most famous classical music composers ever. Um, he's a very fascinating figure. Uh, there's, He's just as talented as he was at composing he was also has become just as infamous for a lot of his political statements um and yeah he was kind of radical guy he was involved with a like an uprising in like dresden at one point i believe wow yeah it's pretty wild um (laughs) anyways he was a musical uh genius who thought that after beethoven um all symphonic works or all just music without words couldn't couldn't move on they couldn't make it past what the summits that Beethoven had achieved. So Wagner, because he early on he wrote some like just purely concert pieces, and then he went, "Nope, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that anymore." So he turns to opera, but not just opera as how it was currently being practiced. He's like, "I need to turn it into uh, some long German word that since I don't have in front of me, I can't pronounce it." But basically, <laughs> the total work of art was what he was going for. So he had this really big old grand idea, um, and it's interesting because in opera. In the opera world, most composers do not write the lyrics to their operas. Certain composers are more involved with it than others. Wagner is the only major composer that I know of that wrote all of his lyrics. He wrote everything. He came up with the stories, came up with the the dialogue, everything. So it was literally, even for him, this giant project that he was just so intimately involved with. And he did all these different works. But the most important one to our conversation is his famous um, The Ring Cycle, or Das Ring da Niebling, I believe is in German. And that's a uh, made up of four operas. You're supposed to watch it over four days, so you go to an opera each night. And those four operas are, they're, they're huge. Combined, it's like 14, 15 hours long. Wow. Um, yeah, because like his last one, uh, God or Damarong, or The Twilight of the Gods, that one's straight up four and a half hours long, which is just huge. Um <laughs> But like he got the king of Prussia to build him his own uh, palace or not palace, his own uh, performing theater um, in the town of Bayreuth. Wow. And actually, you can still go to the Bayreuth Festival. It happens, I believe, every year. And Wagner started it. And the wait list to go to Bayreuth to hear a Wagner opera is approximately 10 years. Whew. 
And it's it's crazy because uh, I was just looking the other day uh, about five hundred thousand people want tickets and there's only like five thousand. <laughs> cool. So yeah, it takes a while to go, but hey, people love it. The music is something else, and Wagner's important. That um, and so far as my music history professor goes, if it wasn't for Wagner, you wouldn't have film music. And I'm like. Psh. Yeah, right. What are you talking about? And then I actually listened to Wagner and started to understand why that's so. And it has to do with the size of the orchestra, the sound of the orchestra. And what's most important is this notion of the leitmotif or leading motive. So leitmotifs, which we'll see in action later, are basically, simply put, they're they're musical phrases that represent ideas, objects, and characters. And composers use these to speak basically create these giant soundscapes. So leitmotifs are um, all over in all of John Williams' music in Star Wars uh, and all of Howard Shore's music in Lord of the Rings. And actually, on a side note, the opera that I talked about, The Ring Cycle, from Wagner, that Germanic legend is actually what inspired Tolkien to write The Lord of the Rings. So that connection is really actually pretty intimate there between Howard Shore and Wagner. Um, But that's kind of enough, I think, about that so then moving sure. from Wagner um, onwards, you basically you know film starts be uh, becoming a um, you know big industry at the start of the twentieth century, um, and what happened was and you know so you have silent movies right and even then music was always important because you'd have the like organ and piano pluggers right you know you remember like you know the guy in the darkened theater that would always be playing all these like chords right when before like right. Charlie Chaplin's about to fall off you know whatever. Um, so even then music was really important to film, but then it's not until the, as it's called the golden age of Hollywood, which is, I think approximately from the 1920s to the late forties, where you have this influx of these great Hollywood classics, right? You have like, uh, gone with the wind, King Kong, Casablanca, uh, the wizard of Oz and so on, all these, uh, classics that are coming out during this period. And, Several of them are known for their great scores, which were written by, uh, actually, yeah, Max Steiner. So he's an Austro-Germanic immigrant who came to the United States, who was taught, you know, in the, within the classical music tradition. Same with his colleague, um, uh, uh, I can't remember his first name, but Korngold. And they both came from, like, Austro-Germany and immigrated to the United States and made a living doing film music. And they were both really successful and really popular for it. Um and uh, Steiner, he uh, scored uh, like King Kong, uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, and Casablanca. So like oh. you know some yeah he's no no um, you know he's a heavyweight definitely. And there were others yeah. too. You have like Alfred Newman. Um, he did he the we still hear his 20th Century Fox fanfare today. Um, oh. he, yeah yeah wow. so he yeah he wrote that and um, anyway so that's the kind of this classic Hollywood era. Now, why is that important to John Williams? Well, first, that's kind of where film music becomes this big thing as film music. Once you now have sound and this, because it all happened pretty quickly, is once, you know, they got sound out. I can't remember the first um, film was uh, The Jazz Singer, I believe. I think that's what, yeah, I think that's what it called. It came out in early 20s, I believe. And so then once you have that, it's like, oh, we got this whole new, like, uh, area that we can explore and so it becomes this industry right and then you even have uh, composers that are known for their classical music uh, Aaron Copeland um, uh, Prokofiev uh, Shostakovich uh, all these figures start doing film scores uh, Ralph Vaughn Williams or excuse me Rafe Vaughn Williams they all do film scores uh, they honestly their film scores are probably not as good as say even like Steiner's or Korngold's or even John Williams for that matter 
but you now have classical composers that are involved doing their film scores, which is right. interesting. Um, and Steiner and Korngold helped make that like palpable because they were like these respected, they're semi-respected, like you know, classically trained uh, composers that then went to go work in Hollywood. Um, Wait, and, so you're you're talking about mm -hmm. um, uh, what Eric Wolfgang Korngold? Yes, that's it. Okay, that's yeah, right. So I was, I just, um, well, George Lucas mentioned him in the interview. Mm -hmm. I, I just oh, read really? in, the in, in the intro of this episode. I just read this interview. Mm -hmm. um so and that's that's one of the people he mentioned he said the idea was to do classical music not spacey or modern music classic mm -hmm. romantic eric wolfgang korngold 1930s yep. that's the one okay he was big influence on john williams um and it's actually not too hard to see why uh so there's and i've never heard of this movie but it's called um king's row and Eric uh, Korngold's theme to it sounds a little familiar. Um, so let me go ahead and see if I can play it for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <What>? doesn't <laughs> that, that sounds familiar I, I oh yeah i can't place it oh you know <laughs> there was just this little thing called the star wars title sequence um <laughs> that's what it was oh, yeah. yeah yep Man. yeah so it sounds very similar i mean some people are just like oh john williams stole this from him and like no that's that he didn't steal it that was definitely inspiration. There's differences. There's musically discernible differences. Right. Yeah. No. Okay. So John Williams, he did this a lot. He, um, so what, for example, what, uh, the editors would do, you know, they mm -hmm. would put musical backgrounds to like all the, all the shots they were cutting. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, John Williams would take a lot of influence from what they chose for the background music. Mm -hmm. um, like a, a lot of the time. Um, uh, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but, uh, mm -hmm. I know he did, and it's interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, he, yeah, so speaking of his process, his process of composing is fascinating. Um, and, and this is something that a lot of folks, I didn't, I had no idea um, how film uh, composing worked. And it's very different than, say, Wagner, who literally spent a decade working on his ring cycle, or even Howard Shore, who started writing the score to The Lord of the Rings before, or just when they had started filming. It's like they both had, um, particularly in the case of Wagner, because there's no film involved, and he did everything, he had his own project, and he was just sitting there, and he could take as long as he wanted. I mean, sure, he had deadlines and everything, but it was still his project. It's not the case if you're a film scorer, or, or film composer. Apparently, you have somewhere around eight weeks is what it looks like for my research on average, which is not a long time, not yeah. at all. Yeah. And it's amazing that like in the case of John Williams, he's just handed the, you know, the edited film or the semi edited film and he goes through it and he just composes. And it's interesting because I have an interview with John Williams that I've got the transcript of. And one of the things that he admits is even nowadays, when he composes, like for the latest sequel trilogy, for example, 
he still composes with pencil and paper, <laughs> which almost almost nobody nowadays does. Because I mean, so when I was in college, I mean, yes, I would have to write things and compose things down on pencil and paper for like an exam, as it were. But whenever I had to do a project, a composition project, no, I would immediately go to the computer and I'd use that because it's much easier. It's faster, even. Sure. I can I can play on a keyboard and have that go into the um into the computer as opposed to having to play on a keyboard and go, oh, that's good, and then write down all the notes and then go back and play on the keyboard and then write down all the notes because that's what John Williams essentially does. Yeah, which is wild. That is wild, and so it makes you appreciate just kind of. Uh, yeah, the the amount of time that he had to come up with this stuff, and still just how brilliant it is. But that leads to this other interesting fact, which kind of disturbed me when I found it out. It might not <laughs> bother a lot of other folks, but it bothered me. And that was when I found out that... So, in the classical world, you have... Whenever a composer composes something, it's also usually understood that they orchestrate it. Now, what does orchestration mean? It's Or instrumentation, same same kind of word. That means that you have to decide which instruments play what. And that might sound pretty easy, but there's an entire art to itself about how to do that. I mean, in a uh, symphonic orchestra, you have approximately 100 players with like about, you know, 10, 11 different instruments easily. And then you can split all of those off into the other groups and they all have certain qualities and there's certain ways to write different things. So it sounds this way and that way. It's a long, it can be a very long and difficult process, but most classical are all classical composers. They write the music and then they orchestrate themselves. So it's like their own sound It's literally, they, they did everything in the film music world. That's not true. And that hadn't been true for a while because it sped up the process if you could just write the music and then you hand it off to somebody and then they orchestrate it. And that also has to do with the fact that orchestration can become very technical because you have to make certain lines of music sound appropriately. You know, you can't have your melody uh, being played by a single, um, a single person and then have the entire orchestra being blasting at, you know, their highest dynamic. Like, sure. That's just not going to work. And right. so you have to orchestrate so that things are able to balance and you have different colors that are coming out at appropriate times and so on. But when I found that out, I was like, wait a minute. So you mean to say though, that John Williams wasn't responsible for the fantastic brass blast that starts star Wars. What if, what if the orchestrator, um, cause he did have, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was friends and they worked together that did the orchestration. I'm like, but anyways, I'm like, what if the orchestrator was like, no, nah, that needs to be a woodwind quintet. <laughs> like what, what, you know, that just loses all of its power and oh, grandeur yeah. and everything. But even though I found that out and I was kind of disheartened, um, about it, it's, it's actually not, it's not like John Williams just came up with all these tunes and harmonies and just said, all right, you guys now figure it out. No, he's, <laughs> He still had a vision. He worked with the orchestrator. The orchestrator was there to help speed up the process of, you know, because you have to write this two hours worth of music and make sure you know how you're going to use, you know, these hundred plus players. And so that's where the orchestrator comes in. And so it's not as bad, I think, as it s might sound. Because in some ways, it sounded like to me, like how, um, you know, it was like the reverse of like, oh, this, you know, famous singer, well, they didn't write the song. Right. You know. <laughs> Um, but it's not nearly that bad. No. So, but speaking of his process, so this is another interesting thing that um, during the interview that I have, he was asked, so like, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Do you go back and look at your, you know, your movies and stuff? And interestingly, John Williams does not listen to music. Whoa. Yeah. 
He huh. and it's, it's it, which is really interesting. And here's why he's got a couple different reasons. So the first one, this is a quote. He goes, if you go to a dinner party, which I do rarely, and somebody has music on, I'm thinking, well, that's in D major. And oh my goodness, the F sharp is flat. And meanwhile, halfway through whatever we're eating, it's hard not to listen to it. If you've been trained in not only conducting, but also <laughs> editing so much music where you're listening to minutia and every take and editing, you know, and digitally, of course. And then he says, well, I'm overstating the matter. Uh, I'm sure and exaggerating it a little bit to make the point. But if I listen to the great classical composers, I would only think that's much better than anything I could write. <laughs> and he goes, it, it isn't comforting. Um, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's it's quite amazing because then he goes on to say, well, um, that uh, this development of the church music into Bach and finally Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven and so on. The art of arranging notes and tones has never reached a higher point than that. That was the apex, probably, of tonal organization. We've since gone to some aspects of tonal total disorganization. Very exciting, the way to go. But we still have always the great masters to look at without envy and the greatest admiration ever possible, at least in my case. And so what's interesting, though, is because of this, like, I think how much he respects music and particularly like other like film scorers, other uh, composers that he and he by his own admission, he feels kind of intimidated is the wrong word, but that might be actually how he would describe it, which is wild. Yeah. Um, but he's a very like humble person. Like you see that throughout the rest of the interview in which um, and it's but I also understand it. It's weird because he spent so much time compiling all this music, composing <laughs> it over eight weeks, yeah. making sure that the final cut is exactly what it is. Yeah. And I get it. If you're literally just comp composing film music, which is what he does. I mean, he's got you know, dozens of other films that are not nearly as successful as Star Wars, but he's working on it. He's composing constantly. Even now, and he's almost 80 years old. No, he's over 80 years old. Yeah. And it's, yeah. But it was really interesting to hear that he's so influenced by the past that he doesn't listen to it. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, but that's, that's, that's kind of his process, at least from what I can gather. Um, yeah, and so backtracking mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Um, to the point you made about him not actually... Um, being really in charge of the mm -hmm. uh, orchestrating and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of that, um, at least for Star Wars, is um, because he'd never actually used an organized symphony, uh, symphony orchestra before mm -hmm. uh, for a film. Um, right. So this this was his first time being involved in that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. it, it makes sense. It does. It does make sense. Um, but it's also interesting because he, at, and this goes back to just the, the, the technical details that happen with, the art of orchestration because John Williams was also though a, a conductor, at least I, I I'm sure he had enough conducting experience because he, he was classically trained. Uh, he played, I, I believe clarinet and piano. Um, I'm not sure where he went to school. I should have looked that up. Um, but anyways, he, so if you're a conductor, you still have to know the orchestra incredibly well. So it's not, I think you're right in saying that this was probably his first time definitely writing for this kind of ensemble, but at the same time, he was, I'm sure, familiar with what's going on because I know he conducted the score, and you can't conduct the score if you don't understand the ensemble. But that's interesting because that's also another step that not a lot of that not a lot of film composers necessarily take. And but it gives you an even finer grained um, control over what the actual ultimate sound is because you're there and you're making sure that everything's being played the way you want it to. And you have, you know, that the sound is right, the tempo, the dynamics, the the um, 
the shading, as it were, the the emphasis and the parts and all of this stuff, all of that's there, and you get to um, to be in charge of it. So it's interesting because at the same time, that gives him more control over the ultimate sound. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, what what I was mm-hmm. referring to was yeah um, in the interview I in the interview I mm-hmm. um, he he says that. Um, I had never used an organized symphony. Uh, symphony. I had never used an organized symphony, uh-huh. symphony orchestra before for a film. I think they played mm-hmm. beautifully, particularly the bass, the brass section. Mm-hmm. I think it has such nobility and such a wonderful heraldic sound. I think it brings something to the film. So that's that's just what I was referring to. So. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, which I think is correct. Uh, well, because Jaws though was an orchestra, but was I it guess an organized yeah. symphony orchestra. I believe so. But actually, it might not have been, and so yeah. that's the the but that's the key difference, and that's one of the yeah. um, interesting points that um, I can try to play over my mic, but I don't. Actually, I think it might be best if listeners do it themselves. That way, they can really hear it. So the original Star Wars trilogy, or not trilogy, the uh, saga, the Lucas saga, the you know original trilogy and prequel trilogy, those feature the London Symphony Orchestra. Yes, the London Symphony Orchestra is its own orchestra and one of the best in the world, uh, like probably top three, top four. And they have an incredibly very distinctive sound. And this is definitely at the very least what Williams is referring to in this um, quotation, because their brass has a very unique sound. Um, And it's interesting to note the differences between each trilogy. And if you just play the opening uh, 30 seconds to each trilogy, it sounds very different. The notes are the same. But the sound is different each time. All three really? were, yeah, all three were conducted by John Williams, and you can tell the difference. Um, it's it's a, it's actually a big difference, um, particularly if you're to compare just the original trilogy to the sequel trilogy. And but by the time of the sequel trilogy, the London Symphony Orchestra did not play that soundtrack. The London Symphony yes. Orchestra was gone. It yep. was. Uh, I can't remember what they called it, but what it basically was, it was a studio orchestra that consisted of primarily musicians from the West Coast symphony orchestras, um, which include, which are, they are good. Um, you have Seattle, uh, Seattle Symphony Orchestra, Los Angeles uh, Philharmonic, and then the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. Those are the best ones out West, and several of their players were involved. Um but those orchestras even are typically not nearly as highly regarded as, say, the other orchestras that are over on the east of America, such as Chicago, uh, New York Philharmonic, Boston uh, Symphony Orchestra, and uh, and so on. But it's interesting because you can tell that there's a difference in the sound um, because you're not bringing this specific ensemble with their own, already their specific sound into play, um, yeah. which... It's so it's a very interesting detail. Furthermore, um, which I didn't know about, but it makes sense. One of the reasons why, so because you might ask, well, if London Symphony Orchestra played on the entire Lucas, uh, you know, saga together, why does it, <laughs> why does it sound different between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy? And yeah. that's because uh, Williams basically increased the size of his orchestra for the prequel trilogy. So one of the key distinctive uh, sounds of star Wars, right. Is the big magnificent brass section. Yes. So one of the things that he added in the prequel trilogy was he basically kind of beefed up the rest of the orchestra too. So like the strings uh, are a bit, you know, they're 
more in charge or they're not really more in charge because i mean star wars but they're they're there in a more prominent way and then you also have the addition of core of course for the first time in the phantom menace (laughs) yeah i would say (laughs) yeah absolutely um fun fact about that uh the uh duel of the fates it's so the lyrics that they're singing are sanskrit and it's loosely translated from something like ancient text called the battle of the trees or something like that wow yeah and just kind of like oh interesting but I mean, I think the real reason why Williams shows is well, it just it sounds really cool. Um, <laughs> and what so what's so the duel of the fates? Mm-hmm. What what that title means mm-hmm. is um, the duel of the fate of Anakin Skywalker. So really, oh. like that, and that's what George Lucas intended it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, what he wanted was to imply that the winner of this duel. Mm-hmm. would d- determine the fate of Anakin. So since mm-hmm. Qui-Gon died, Maul killed him, Qui-Gon died, right. uh, Obi-Wan trained Anakin, and that's arguably why Anakin became the way he was. Right. Uh, because if Qui-Gon had won, for example, if, yeah, all the alternative would be Qui-Gon wins, mm-hmm. he trains Anakin, and potentially he um, you know, directly confronts Anakin later in life about his um, uh, love for Padme, Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, helps him through it instead of Obi Wan, who just like ignores it, basically. Um, right. So it really is the fate of Anakin Skywalker. They are dueling to determine mm-hmm. what will happen to the future, and uh, it's, it's just really interesting. It's a great piece. It is. It's it's one of my favorite pieces from uh, Star Wars. So uh, now will be a good time to bring up. So there's a, a document. You can actually just any of our listeners here, uh, or your listeners here, can uh, just go and. Google this, and this is by a musicologist. His name is uh, Frank Lehman. Yeah, and he's a professor at Tufts University, and he has it's a document he keeps updating. He has uh, cataloged all of the leitmotifs from Star Wars. Wow. And it's pretty impressive. He has the uses of where they show up, what films. um, I mean, he's he's got it all. He has even like at the end. uh, Yeah, we can get to this now. um, He has actually even... uh, the amount of times different leitmotifs are used per film. And it's interesting to see the changes. And he has a kind of mapped out. It's like one of those graphs in which like each bar in the, like the single bar graph are different colors. So you can still see like what makes up the majority of say, you know, the statements of those leitmotifs. And it's very interesting to actually see which ones of them is prominent. Um, But anyway, so duel of the fates. And I think you're definitely actually, Lucas's quote there is right on, at least with the musical evidence, in that Duel of the Fates features prominently in all three prequel films, which is interesting. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, yeah, it's in all three. And if you even compare it to, say, the other piece of music that I actually often had it confused with, uh, which is the Battle of the Heroes, and that's from the, right. uh, yeah. the, the third film. Yeah, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And that one's, it's very similar. Um, but yeah, Duel of the Fates is it's a it's a great one, um, and it's it's amazing because it uh, is all built out of similar specific pieces of material, and that's what allows John Williams to be able to spin this thing out and create this kind of long uh, uh, buildup, as it were, out of very similar materials, and then be able to use it throughout the rest of the three films because these pieces can come apart, as it were. Um, and so, because you have, you know, like the basic underlying, and then you have like the main theme, and then you have the chorus that sings, and all three of those parts all kind of interplay with each other for the, throughout the duration of the piece. Yeah. Um, 
So, and which is, it's, you know, brilliant writing of uh, very, very dramatic. Um, yeah. And even what's interesting too, is that there's a chance actually, this is kind of a fun fact. And I never even noticed it, but, and you could hear it, I think right before Maul kills Qui-Gon Jinn, where it's just vocals and they're just kind of whispering some text and, up, uh, and that actually shows back up in episode nine, which yes. is interesting. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that. I was going to say, mm. is that is that like what we get in episode nine? Okay. Yep. That's, that's really, and so that's that's a pretty mm. big theme in like legends too, and like the mm-hmm. old republic especially. Yeah. Like that's that's classic, um, stereotypical Sith is uh, just kind of you get this, um, you know, the whispering in the background. It's like, yep. That's stuff the like one. That. okay okay yeah so just that is if you hear that you can assume that like this is dark side stuff this is sith Sith sorcery sith um uh what's what's ritual that kind of thing Mm -hmm. yep Um, so yeah that's that's typical sith right there that's really cool i didn't i didn't know that that is uh in in the duel of fates wow yeah yeah no um and there's several other like musical gems that are hidden in there and this is the beauty of back to the whole leitmotif concept this is what you can do with leitmotifs is you can and they help carry you through the drama in ways in which just regular music doesn't because they're, you're identifying these things with characters and ideas and places. However, it, if the leitmotifs themselves though, aren't that good that it can kind of, you know, be annoying, but usually oftentimes when they're used, their leitmotifs are, they're really great because it's a lot of work and it's really, um, you know, but it also, even though it's a lot of work like up front, it makes it easier long-term because John Williams doesn't have to start from scratch for every single film, even though every film he introduces new ideas, you know, so he doesn't just like recycle the same music, but he's able to use these themes that he's developed from the very first film onwards and to really be able to tell a story. Yeah. And it makes it all really very coherent. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. So what George Lucas designed or wanted the movie to be was um, he wanted it to be able to, um, be understood by um, even a four-year-old just yep. by uh, what's going on in the background, what the music is. He was mm-hmm. he was saying um, uh, he said it's like a silent movie. It was designed, written, and shot to be understood without words. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know, music is the biggest part of that. Um, Correct. So that's that's really interesting. It is, and that's exactly what John Williams achieved. Just like what Wagner achieved. Because I. I've listened to the entire ring cycle, all 15 hours of it, <laughs> and I don't speak a lick of German. So how did I make it through? Well, because Wagner has this giant system of leitmotifs with all these different ideas being there. And I can be like, oh, that's the sword leitmotif. Oh, that's Siegfried's horn call. Or, oh, that's that's the sound of death or the curse of the ring. And I can do that while just listening without knowing any of the dialogue. So I can back right. that claim up with experience that you can still follow <laughs> what's going on if you're just even familiar with some of the ideas at play and For how sure. they're being musically represented. What's interesting, though, right. is because Williams composed this over a period of time, and particularly because he, from I think even the interview that I read, he didn't know that there was going to be a fifth Star Wars film, or, well, second Star Wars film at the time, back right. in the, end yeah. the 70s. Um, <laughs> He, yeah, he he didn't know, and so what's interesting is that there are certain things that actually uh, that like happened in the fourth film, like musically, that he just was like, "No, I'm not using those again." <laughs> um, one of the biggest ones is his original uh, s- uh, sound for the Imperials, um, uh-huh. because you have the Imperial March that also is Darth Vader's theme that doesn't show up until the fifth film. Yeah, 
and so he used something else that's slightly similar. Um, I can play it. It yeah. might. So the, is that the Imperial like Attack? The Imperial Attack? Uh, no. Attacks or whatever? Okay. No, uh, it's different. So this is just the um, leitmotif. It's described in Lehman's thing as, hold on, whoops, lost my place in it, um, as just Imperials, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I'd never I never noticed it before. Yeah, it's just Imperials motif is how uh Dr. Lehman describes it. Okay. And this is kind of I think what it sounds like. Nope, sorry, that's the intro. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Um, nice uh, I know, I know. Oh, here it is. <laughs> oh, wait. I think you're right. It is Imperial attack. Oh, what do you know? Yep. So it does share a little bit of a, a little similarity to the Imperial well, March, but yeah, not a lot at all. If, even if you listen further, it, it gets even more similar. Um, yeah, that, that's that's a really good uh, piece. I really like that one. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it does it does get similar. I heard it the first time. Mm. I was like, wait, is this the Imperial March? No, no, because this is Episode Four, right? Um, and because that, that's what that's like right at the beginning of Episode Four, right? That's when mm -hmm. they're boarding the Tantive Four. Yep. Yep, okay. the, the timestamp here is like six minutes, 40 seconds. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, so, there, so there you go. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, oh, well, it's interesting because then the Imperial March, actually, according to him, that shows up for the first time a minute and 55 seconds into the fifth one. Yeah. And then it's used in every single movie after that. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I wow. knew that it was even used in the prequels because that's something that's interesting. So it's also it's also used in uh, Star Wars: The Clone Wars. <laughs> yep, <laughs> which is it's this really it's this really crazy part where um, mm. uh, Anakin meets Tarkin for the first time, mm. um, Governor mm -hmm. Tarkin, and yeah. um, they go through this crazy experience having to break out of this prison, mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, Tarkin's like. I admire, or he's like, thank you very much for your uh, assistance, General Skywalker. Maybe not all the Jedi are as terrible as I think. And they shake hands, and mm. right when they do, you get like four notes from the Imperial March. It's like, mm. bum, 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 And it's just, it's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. That's interesting, though. So it, it shows up in every movie after that? Mm -hmm. Even mm -hmm. well, Okay, even in uh, Rogue One and Solo? Uh, I think so, actually. Let me double check. Um, cause he does have those cut. Yep. And Rogue One Solo, it shows up too. Wow. Yeah. That's um, crazy. It, it, it's he, and well, he, the nice thing is you can do it. And sometimes you'll actually notice, like I even specifically remember as a kid watching, I think return of the Jedi, or maybe it was in the empire strikes back one of those. And they play it like really just kind of slowly and mournfully at other times. Like that's, that's one of the things that makes a good leitmotif, a good leitmotif when you can bend it for different purposes with it still being completely and utterly recognizable. And so because it can be played loud, soft, it can be played and in, in the March, which it's like famously, you know, known for, or it can just be a simple statement of, of the first, you know, of the four bars. And so that's how you, he could sneak it in very easily wow. <laughs> without anybody noticing. Um, and after, if it's, you know, because of this light motifs, you know, they are short ideas. So, Four bars of music, unless it's a very slow tempo, it's not very long. And at the typical tempo, uh, you know, it, it would only take like five seconds, six seconds or so, and then it'd be gone. So it's really easy to miss at times. Um, yeah. 
Okay, yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, but then speaking of the Imperial March, and this is where this is interesting. I didn't know about this. So, Young Anakin has a theme. I learned this yesterday. Young Anakin, <laughs> yeah, Young Anakin has a theme, um, which I didn't know. It doesn't surprise me that he does. But apparently, Young Anakin was specifically designed to actually uh, turn into the Imperial March. The theme. Yes. Okay, gotcha. And it's hard because if you look or if you listen to the music or even just look at it, it is not clear how that is so. But John Williams um, specifically designed it that way in order to demonstrate this kind of like, oh, he's becoming, you know, the Darth Vader. Wow. And that's actually really cool. <laughs> it is. It, it's it's really cool. Um, I'm trying to find where specifically uh, Lehman points it out. Here it is. Yeah. So he's got a, his he's got a big analysis of it and specifically how it fits. Um, and it has to do with the harmonies that are being used um, because that that's the yeah, the harmonies match up the lines, the contour lines, as it were. So like the melody melody does not. So that's okay. why it's harder to hear it. Okay. But he's got like his. Yeah. You, um, and I think I've even seen like a, an interview where John Williams like said that. Um or at least that's what even this you know musicologist here says, um, and, and it makes sense uh, that that would be exactly what he'd be going for. Um, yeah. So it it's interesting. One of my favorite ones, though, of these kinds of because uh, in music, this is oftentimes can be called thematic transformation, even though with the light motif, that's technically not exactly what's happening, but it's similar ideas. Which basically, you take a musical idea and it becomes something different. It's still recognizable from what it was, but now it sounds different or it's in a different context. And to me, it's one of my favorite things. And so you can hear this. Um, are you familiar with uh, Audie's Municipal Band? Uh, no. Okay. Let me pull that one up real <laughs> quick. Because um, that one's one of my uh, that one's one of my favorites. Okay. Um, oh, man, I don't have it pulled up. Hold on. But... Uh -oh. I know, I know. But here's what does end up happening in that music. So the uh, um, Darth Sidious's theme, Palpatine's theme, is actually turned into a uh, major a piece of – it's in major, so it doesn't sound sad and scary. Um, and instead it's happy and joyful, but that's because he's just become uh, you know, a chancellor. <laughs> sure, yeah. And that's how the first film ends actually is with oh, that music. Okay. Um so let me pull it up really quickly. All right, here we go. <laughs> Not this part. It's when the children start singing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's that. The ba da 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 da, and then that's Palpatine's me, theme. That well, that's Palpatine's theme in major. Yes. Um. So let me pull up Palpatine's theme really quickly. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really that's yeah. really crazy. I like so mm -hmm. that that's that's a really cool piece right there. Um, yeah. But I yeah, it never occurred to me that I was really you know emphasizing palpatine at all i i didn't know that at all either i just thought the tune was fun and i like the horn calls i was like oh this is great but then um that really changes the dynamic of how that scene oh yeah out in your mind <laughs> oh yeah so then here's sorry there's an ad one second 
because <laughs> I'm Good. doing both YouTube and Spotify at the same time because different okay. links and stuff. But he, so here's Emperor Palpatine's theme. Whoops. Sorry, that was the that's other one. Heard. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. That's because I'm managing like five tabs. Um, <laughs> my fault. Uh, but no, that's because mm -hmm. it's right after or right before like Palpatine, you know, talking to Anakin saying, yep. we will be watching your career with great interest. That's right. And he puts his hand on his shoulder and <laughs> you're like, oh, OK. But yeah, no. yeah Palpatine's theme and this really major. That's, that's yep. So actually, and here's what's even crazy about this. I didn't realize. But if you're a music aficionado and you you notice that you would you would have figured out who the emperor was before anybody else. <laughs> wow. So That's here's crazy. Yep. So here's uh the Emperor's theme. Maybe. I, I don't hear anything. Oh, yeah, I don't hear anything either. <laughs> Here we go. I don't know. Did you did you hear it or because the orchestration is completely different? But the thing yeah. is, it's so the same. A lot, it's a lot. It's a lot quieter. It is, yeah. Um, but you, it, you want you want to turn up the volume a little and try? Yeah, it yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's on the lower register too, so that might be harder for the mic to okay. pick up. But yeah, yeah, let me let me try that but, one again. Yeah. So what? It was that was crazy though because it was completely different. Oh yeah, but it's the same. It's the music is based off the same notes in the melody. Huh. So all right, here we go again. Back it up a little bit. So the key thing there, I don't know if that was any better, is because it's again, it's hard a bit harder to hear. Uh, let me let's go back to Augies though. Yeah. Let me back up the the beginning. Yeah. So wait, what what was the second one called? This one or the first one? So the first is the Emperor's theme. That's the. Right, and then Audrey's municipal band is. Ba na 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 na. Oh oh yeah wow yeah. Yeah, so when I sing it, it's like, oh my gosh. Oh, wait a minute. Yep, they sound completely different. And, and that's you, just... And you can't catch that because mm -hmm. it's it's sung the first time and played the second time. Right. Wow. Right. Whew. And it's just completely like one's like upbeat, happy, celebratory. The other is literally just like lots of low sounds, really dark orchestral uh, colors. And then... And the emperor's arriving. Like it's, you're not even you're not even thinking this. And particularly if you didn't even know that Emperor Palpatine is well, Emperor Palpatine, and you just think he's some politician, dude. You're not going to be looking out for it. No. And yeah. yeah, so like that to me is one of the coolest things I discovered. Um, was that they're those are the same. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, but then it's interesting. A lot of like you can really just start digging deep into some of these themes and what where it shows up, where it doesn't. Um, like and not a lot of folks know this but you know the main theme the ba -ba -ba -ba, ba -ba 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 -ba, that is also luke's theme yes yeah i caught mm -hmm. so like towards the end of the movie mm -hmm. um yeah yeah i did catch that 
Yeah, well, no, even just the the very first thing that you hear, well, you, after the fanfare, the initial opening, and then you have, you know, the famous, dun, 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 that's Luke. Oh, huh. Yeah, even though it also doubles as the main theme. And what's interesting is, at least, I, I haven't watched the sequel trilogy nearly as much as I've watched the others, but you can definitely tell, particularly in the original trilogy, you will hear that throughout the films. Yes. Particularly when Luke is doing something heroic. Yep. And which is interesting because then, well, when Luke's gone, you don't have that there, even though it you know, obviously shows up in all, all the films because it's either in the end credits or the beginning credits. You know? <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, so but that to me is also interesting. That's interesting because I always I always associated Luke with um, the binary sunsets. Um, oh, so piece. binary sunsets. That's yeah, the, that's the force theme. Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. mm. that is the yeah. most the most uh used leitmotif in all of star wars so the graph here that uh lehman has hope i'm i'm hope i'm pronouncing his name right um <laughs> yeah, is been saying it that way this whole time i know um <laughs> is let me find the graph in this 70 page document um it's yeah uh, because particularly some, I listened to some YouTube video something about this a couple of months ago, and they pointed out that like once the Disney took over, particularly like the sequel trilogy, it was just like force theme, force theme, force theme, force theme. Like that was what huh. they just. And I, I even specifically remember, I think the first trailer they launched utilized that as like one of their main things. Uh, and it, it's great. It's beautiful. But what's interesting is it was originally just known as Binary Sunset. It yeah. didn't come to represent the Force until later. But now looking back at that scene with you know Luke mm -hmm. looking wistfully off into the sunset, it puts a whole new light on it now that you know what's going through his mind, what's going, what's literally going through him in the Force. Right. Correct. Absolutely. Um. Oh. So what what yeah. it was what it was originally designed for was um, mm. uh, so originally um, it was very triumphant. Um, mm -hmm. That's how John Williams um, made it very triumphant. Mm. But George Lucas wanted it to be very uh, romantic and very mm -hmm. wistful. Yeah. Um, so it was you know it was basically that that part of it was emphasized more. Um, mm -hmm. But that the so okay that's yeah that's really interesting though. Yeah. That's the force theme. Yep. Not, okay. Yep. And so I found so I found the graph here and with the numbers. So the force theme is used approximately 158 times throughout all nine films. And then in second place, you have the Imperial March. OK, um, <laughs> but it's interesting because the force theme is, it, yeah, definitely the Disney films. Yeah, because uh, to give us the number, the Lucas films had approximately 100 uses of the force theme okay. the so then the disney films just the, those three just add, those three just those three <laughs> add about 60 <laughs> meanwhile the others you know so that just kind of puts into okay yeah so they did use it a lot but then it's followed in second place by the imperial march which only was used 101 times um but what's huh. interesting is it's used according to these numbers here about 40 times in just the empire strikes back <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah that's yeah. crazy so it's it's interesting um, that you can yeah and you can map some of this stuff out and indeed even uh, if at least personally I noticed that like in certain films like certain pieces of music just came to dominate right like Duel of the Fates definitely dominated Phantom Menace uh, then you have the love theme across the stars 
that's yes. you know, uh, Padme and yep. Anakin's love theme. Yep. And that's not introduced until the second film, and that right. becomes a big centerpiece of it. Um, the yeah. third film, it's harder to say exactly what uh, centerpiece, though, because now we're using Duel of the Fates and um, and uh, the love theme from Anakin Padme. Right. Um, because yeah, I'm looking at it here. It's th that love theme is only in episodes two and three, and it's still used 22 times. Wow. Huh. And then Young Anakin is only used 22 times, but it was pretty much only used in the first film. Makes sense. But once it showed up in the third film. Whoa. Huh. Which is interesting. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you can you know go and look at this stuff. But then like Kylo's theme, or yeah, Kylo's sec. Yeah, those were I really used like a Kylo's bunch. Theme. I really like Kylo's theme. Yeah, I was just now kind of listening to Kylo's theme yesterday, trying to get a grasp on it because I'm very familiar with the um, the Lucas era stuff more so than the Disney. Yeah, me too. Um, but particularly, even like the music didn't capture me exactly the same way. And no. Um, but it's interesting because even looking at this um, chart here, Ray's theme is used more than a lot of other stuff. It's used 73 times. So that's more than. Um, Anything but the main theme, the Imperial March and the Force, huh. which is interesting. Um, and that's only from the three movies. Yeah, which is yeah, huh. it, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, so it's like I don't even know what one necessarily wants to make with some of these numbers. Um, <laughs> right, but but it is at least that you know passing glance. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. so but yeah, so those are some of the the great light motifs that John Williams does. Then you have a lot of other like subtler things that go on. Um, including like certain the uh, like feelings or not necessarily feelings, but this is where the influences become very palpable to go back to that kind of question. So, um, one of the things uh, like to signify, for example, um, you know the arrival of the droids onto Tatooine. Um, John Williams literally takes something straight up out of a uh, Igor Stravinsky, who wrote a famous, very famous ballet uh, called Rite of Spring that actually caused a riot when it premiered. Um. It, and it sounds almost identical. So here, this is just kind of interesting to me. So this is the beginning of um, th when the, the droids first show up in Tatooine, the fourth movie. And this is John Williams. And you're like, yeah. oh, that's very telling. You know, it's this exotic kind of like, you know, crazy place out there. And then here's from Stravinsky's ballet. It's pretty wild. Wow, that's, that's nearly identical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because though at the same time, it's clear and it's interesting about how even music just works in general, that they're both trying to conjure, both Stravinsky and John Williams are trying to conjure the exact same kinds of images and emotions in the listener. So what, what mm -hmm. part in the ballet, what's the setting? Oh, so the setting, so the, the one, all right, you remember how I mentioned that it caused a riot? Well, it caused a riot because of how wild it sounded <laughs> on one that was one thing that that's you know literally people like ripped up chairs and stuff um and because the harmonies and the music was just yeah it was pretty wild but then the other thing the ballet itself is about pagan russia and it's literally about like you know these bunch of, like old ancient pagan tribes like picking uh the a virgin to dance herself to death so that spring can show up wow yeah yeah you're like oh <laughs> okay oh, oh. 
okay yeah so but all, all right. that that fits in with you know why i think this so that one's called that one section is just called introduction so that's in the um which is i think the introduction it actually comes like a third of the way through the piece so it's not actually the introduction i don't even know why that that's why i was labeled here um <laughs> but stravinsky was a big influence even on um john williams uh so really? like, yeah yeah um and so like here's another excerpt from stravinsky's uh ballet and it can it sounds as uh, reminiscent of like uh the a lot of battle music that john williams does and so here here's this this is called um from the ride of the spring as well and it's called the dance of the earth So I look at that and then uh, compare it to here, like a Tie Fighter attack. Yeah. But, well, and that's Ben's death. But sorry, trying to find it. No, that that is here. We go. Here it is. Yep. Yep. That's Luke's theme. No, that this is Tie Fighter attack. But okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm just drawing the comparisons there between like. So is the part that, at the beginning yeah. not? Is that not Luke's theme? I it might have been. Um, that was Ben's death, and then Tie Fighter Attack is how it's said here on like the little Spotify thumbnail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it that's, might. That's, that's the scene I was thinking of. Too. Yeah, yeah. So it might it might have had that, and that's well, that's the thing that's neat about listening to these. You know, they're cut from or you know the soundtracks that are released, and you have all this different stuff that happens, and a lot of these different light motifs and themes are all like shoved together into these one excerpt because you have all these things that are coming up in the excerpt to match what's happening on the screen. Yeah. And so you can get like a dozen different things um, that are going on at the same time. Um, yeah. And what else, what else came to mind when I mm -hmm. heard that, uh, that second thing from the ballet was uh, yeah. the here they come uh, from mm -hmm. the battle, from the battle at the end. That was yeah. pretty reminiscent of that. So yes. And so there's actually a musical reason even and that is, uh, I promise I wasn't going to get too technical, but all right. So, you know, there's like major and minor scales, right? Um, or collections, just groupings of notes. So simply put, there are groupings of notes that are, uh, all, it's called octatonic, and they alternate between half step and whole step. Stravinsky uses those to organize his ballet, Rite of Spring, and John Williams uses those to do his battle music. So huh. that's why, one of the reasons why they sound uh, similar. And that's pointed out by, um, I mean, not that connection, but uh, Lehman says, oh, yeah, this is, I'm calling this the octatonic battle music. <laughs> and so that's that connection that he at least either implicitly or explicitly got from Stravinsky and be like, oh, well, Stravinsky's music is really like, you know, tough and, you know, uh, jumpy and kind of, you know, out there and exotic and whatnot. So he's like, oh, I'm going to use that for battle, the chaos and the craziness of battle. Yeah. Um, and it works very, very well. In that regard. So that's just another way in which these kinds of previous musical ideas, even if John Williams didn't go, oh, yes, I'm going to copy Stravinsky, it doesn't matter because then even the, you know, th these ideas are transmitted down through like just even what common practice uh, composers were doing at the time. Then that explains kind of why he used it. But even to go back to what you're talking about with the Lucas quote, which is really interesting because Lucas, uh, as along with a lot of other filmmakers at the time, were very inspired by Stanley Kubrick. Um, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey director. Yep. Yep. Um, and Stanley Kubrick, amazing director. 
Uh, and so it's interesting because there's been a lot of scholarly work on even the music for 2001 a Space Odyssey for a couple of reasons. One is because it's famous for its music, but most of its music is all from classical composers. Yeah. Um, so which is interesting. But Kubrick did that instead of taking uh, the score by a fellow. I think his name is Alex North, who was a very good film composer. Um, and he written the score and Kubrick goes, no, we're going to use these pieces of classical music instead. <laughs> and it's created a big question mark because people were now like, to, you know, they're like, oh, John Williams created this giant soundscape that didn't exist because back to the whole history thing. At the end of the golden age of Hollywood, you have kind of this decline that happens in the 50s and early 60s, particularly because TV started to take over. Um, and so film music changed and it was much more poppy. It didn't have this kind of big orchestral blanket kind of sound that was pop that they had used initially and then that Williams used through Star Wars. So Williams was one of the first or he was the first person to bring that sound back into Hollywood in the late 70s. And many other films will try to emulate it. So even like the Avengers franchise, Marvel, for example, tries to emulate that sound often at times. However, they it's not at all the same. Um, they've got <laughs> you know, their kind of their Avengers theme and they might have some other stuff going on. I don't know. But um, it's still the same kind of like, oh, you know, you got your big orchestra playing behind you. Like, you know, that's much more common in film now because of well what john williams did yeah and not only in just star wars but in all these other films that he did with steven spielberg um and and george lucas like indiana jones another great you know, oh yeah score oh, yeah. that that's that is a really good score yeah yes. i like that a lot yes yes and it's that not et i like the et oh i love et as well and so those films i'm pretty sure they do have their themes right like you know yeah. sort of certain themes for different characters yep. and different ideas but it's nowhere near as complex as star wars no um and that's one of the things that differentiates, say, Star Wars from just any other, you know, film composing enterprise uh, besides Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't know of any other film that does this, particularly over such a long period of time. Um, and it's done very, very well. You know, it's 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 a moving music. And so I actually made a list of certain things that makes like John Williams great. Right. And so. The biggest thing, and this is what I was even pointing out with, say, like the ballet stuff with Stravinsky, which, you know, that was at the time was like cutting edge, like, you know, scary, as it were, music. And so sure. um, and Williams does do that at times. If you listen to certain parts of the soundtrack, it's not pretty. It's actually kind of ugly and it's supposed to be ugly. Like it's it's not tonal, as it were. So you have like these cluster chords with all this dissonance, all these ugly sounding notes. And he does that on purpose. Um, and that's for different things, whether it's it's often like space or mystery or these other things like you can go through and look at the different light motifs and what have you. Um, but what's great about Williams is him taking that as well as like the cowboy stuff, as it were, like, you know, the swashbuckling, you know, uh, stuff that we heard from like Corn Gold that uh, oh, yeah. Kings Row, you know, the opening title, this, you know, it just it sounds triumphant and fanfare and, you know, yeah. it just makes you smile. So combining that with this other stuff and then he takes, you know like a lot of rhythmic innovations that Stravinsky also did that makes it interesting. Um, large percussion section, all of these things. So he, because he's got all these different sources and all these different techniques, whether it's from, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, from emulating late romantic uh, Germanic composers um, or using the melodies of a lot of the great Russian composers like Tchaikovsky, I think was a big influence from John Williams because John Williams tunes are so great, which brings me to my second point. So the first is he's, was able to synthesize all these different things. Yeah. Um, 
and turn it into this giant uh, canvas, this giant tapestry. Um, and then his tunes, his tunes are just, they, they're catchy. They stick with you. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something hard because you can't really teach or study that. You can explain to a certain extent about being like, okay, I can, you know, I can understand why that this is moving or what have you. But then at the same time, it's kind of like, you can't say, Oh, this is going to work. And I trust me, it's <laughs> not until people actually right. listen to it that you're then like, Oh, this was really good. And when people have the stuff stuck in their head for days and weeks on end, that's when you've done something special. And that's where the creativity comes in. So there's no, he, and he's done that somehow all these light motifs you can just remember. And you're like, Oh, wow. Yeah. You know? True. Yeah. And then, so then that combined with just the, um, the 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 power of the the ensemble that he had particularly at the time like you know london symphony orchestra best orchestras in the world played on a film film score and then the way it's orchestrated so like with a very brass heavy sound it just you know it sounds brilliant it sounds really strong and just you know whisks you away um and th that combined with i think just lucas's vision for what they were doing is just what pulls it all together to create i think you know the phenomenon of uh you know the music of star wars yeah yeah so i mean i think uh, yeah uh do you have any other questions joshua uh not right now no so you know mm -hmm. we might do some later episodes sure um because this was this was really cool this is really informative for me um yeah. and i'm sure for a lot of our listeners mm -hmm. um yeah, that, that's that's really cool. This is uh, really insightful, really. Um, mm -hmm. Just knowing all this background about the music, what the music mm -hmm. means, and right. then applying it to each scene, each part of the movie. That yep. that's really interesting. Um, yeah, because we know George Lucas is a crazy planner. He had like mm -hmm. twelve movies planned. Um, yeah, he was, mostly he was focusing on the nine, but right. Still, he was a, he was a planner. He 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 took every detail into account. He made sure that no detail mm -hmm. was overlooked. So we yep. know that everything that happens in the movie down mm -hmm. to the music um, mm -hmm. is all what he wants, all uh, either foreshadowing or emphasizing something mm -hmm. or um, explaining something. And that's this is really cool. Thanks for yeah. thanks for talking about this with me. No, absolutely. My pleasure. I mean, this is music that I care about. I always want to understand. And I care about the music of Star Wars. So, like, it was just because, yeah, I found out about this stuff years ago, this giant catalog, and I went through it. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. So, I mean, it's great for me to just sit there and look at this giant pile of, um, you know, of uh, art that Williams has left us. I mean, at this point, it's like, yeah, I don't know, like 12, 14, 15 hours worth of music. I mean, that's a lot. That's a huge number. Yeah. Um, and to see how it fits with the film is just remarkable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, I mean that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Like I'm <laughs> I'm my, I'm not musically minded at all. I'm never mm -hmm. going to be able to understand music um, you know, mm -hmm. like you can or like any like John Williams or any yeah. great composer. I I'm never going to be able to understand music like that. That's just I'm not musically minded. Um, mm -hmm. but this this was really informative. This is really helpful. Um, Good. So uh, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. No, absolutely. My pleasure. I I had fun. I I I love talking about things that I find interesting and i'll just oh, yeah, me too that's yeah that's why i have this podcast you know oh yeah no absolutely <laughs> absolutely so yeah. yeah you know i'd love to come back on we can look at some more light motifs because there's a lot um yeah no that'd be cool that'd be a cool episode to do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah no definitely definitely yeah so you know let me know yeah. when you start your your music podcast and have oh music. yeah <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I will. Well, <laughs> there you go. So that'd be great. And thank you mm. all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed uh, me having Mark on here. I know y'all typically like the um, the guest appearance episodes, and uh, I really enjoyed this one a lot. Yes, uh, very fun, very fun. Make sure to um, listen to this episode. Uh, clearly, you have if you've gotten here, but make sure to listen to my other. Uh, guest episodes and future episodes with Mark if you enjoyed this, which I'm presuming you did since you're still here 60 minutes into it. Um, so thanks thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or you want me to uh, get Mark to talk about anything in particular, just email me. You know my email. It's in the podcast description and in the episode description. And until next time, may the force be with you. <laughs>